Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, it's not Tom Stoppard's aerobics program, but it is National Pony Sweat collaborating with TransHealth for a fundraiser that is welcoming to all bodies and their wellnesses. And despite that terrible joke that I just made, <laughs> I've been in your company for far too long. There's more pony jokes to come. Oh, so many. We'll speak with director Dallas Dukar about this event and safe spaces for fitness inclusion. And we'll head to Amherst to discover more books from more international authors, one of the many missions of Restless Books, who recently opened a brick-and-mortar location on Main Street in Amherst, will speak with proprietor Ilan Stabans, an Amherst College professor, about the importance of globalizing your reading lists. But first... Where are you calling from today? Last time we talked to you were in Kenya. I'm in Worcester. <laughs> oh, not as fun. Although, Worcester's a great not city. Time for our weekly check-in with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, a ranking member of the Rules Committee, Congressman Jim McGovern, headline from the Daily Hampshire Gazette, MEMA declines to pursue federal disaster declaration for the region, a story by Chris Larrabee. Following three torrential downpours that wiped out roads in Conway and Deerfield in July, the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency declined to seek a federal disaster declaration because the monetary damages don't meet the federal threshold. A lot of this has to do with the timing of the storms and them coming back to back to back over a certain period of days. What's your take on Massachusetts emergency management not coming to the feds and even asking for relief? Look, here's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in making sure that all the damage is repaired. Uh, I'm interested in making sure that all the infrastructure that has been destroyed gets fixed. And however the state wants to do it, they need to figure out a way to do it. Similarly, I mean, we have been you know, fighting to make sure that our farms that have been adversely impacted are made whole. And, and, you know, one of the challenges we have even on that is that some of the state and federal programs that exist are kind of like a puzzle. And if, you know, you're missing one piece, you're not eligible. So that's why many of us, and I know you've been very supportive of this, have, you know, have been trying to raise money for this resiliency fund, getting private donations. You know, we did a great event at uh, Berkshire Brewers last week and uh, raised some money to try to get as much help to our farmers as possible. And my understanding is that some of those checks are going out to our farmers now, the initial checks. So, yeah, the first round of checks of about $10,000 to, uh, I think, over 100 farms at last check. But you, we need to do whatever we need to do to make not just farms and businesses that were adversely impacted whole, but we need to make sure that our infrastructure is repaired. And by the way, we're going to have to invest in additional infrastructure uh, given the fact that this may not be the only time we have this kind of weather pattern. And again, I, I, I'm not here to question you know, the Massachusetts uh, authorities on why they did not make this request, but however they get to getting the resources to fix what needs to be fixed, they need to do it. We haven't talked to you since your recent farm tour that you took uh, about two weeks ago now. Update on how those farms are doing. I know you visited Natural Roots in Conway, which suffered greatly after uh, those floods that we've been talking about from mid-July. What were some of the things you learned mm -hmm. on that farm tour? And what are you going to take towards the debates uh, on the farm bill that is uh, underway right now? What I witnessed firsthand was some of the damage from the rains and the flooding, especially out in the farms in the western part of my district, but also farms um, in central Mass. And they lost a lot of potential revenue um, as a result of those storms. So one is we have an immediate issue of helping the farms now. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the need to invest in appropriate infrastructure in anticipation that we may have similar storms. There are some areas where, quite frankly, some infrastructure investment w w would help. But the other thing is the farm bill 
on the federal level, you know, has historically been aimed at helping the biggest of the farms that exist. I mean, the agribusinesses, you know, the corporate farms. And I think we have to reorient uh, the focus to make sure that there is an adequate amount being spent to help support the needs of small and medium-sized farms. And that's one of the things that we are we are trying to, to focus on. Now, here's the deal. As we speak, the, the, the Republicans have not shown us a draft of any farm bill. I have no idea what they're going to hand us. It's hard to talk about like what we're going to amend and what we're going to change when you don't have anything to work with. You know, originally we were told that, you know, the first week we get back, we would take this up. That It's clear now that that's not going to happen. So we'll have to see uh, when we get back in a, in a week and a half whether they, they want to move or not. But if they don't move, we ought to extend the current farm bill for a year. Does that happen by uh, default but, or does it no, need to be we're voted gonna have, on? We're gonna, yeah, we're going to have to vote on it. And the challenge is going to be whether they'll even allow us to vote on it. If you read the headlines now, you know, we, you know, one of the things we have to do when we come back is to pass a short-term spending bill to keep the government running while they work out their appropriations bills. We have 12 appropriation bills. I've only done one. I mean, I've never, I've never experienced this inactivity before. They're fighting amongst themselves. But McCarthy, Speaker McCarthy, in order to get an agreement from the hardline right-wingers that we can even debate a short-term spending bill, he's now saying we can't impeach Biden unless you keep the government running. That's how he's trying to get them to agree to allow us to even vote on it. So it's a pathetic state of affairs. You know, we're in for a bumpy road when we come back uh, in a week and a half. Speaking to U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, McGoverning with McGovern. Today happens to be Overdose Awareness Day. Massachusetts Governor Moore Healy asking the president to lower flags to half staff. I know that there are a series of uh, events and vigils that have either gone on this week or will go on tonight uh, in Northampton. There's an event at Pulaski Park from 6 to 8 with speakers to remember the uh, 22,000 people who have passed away due to an overdose death in the past decades. My next door neighbor passed away to an overdose death earlier this year. What is your office hearing about overdose, specifically opioid overdoses, which seem to be the, the crux of, of this problem here? And what is your office doing to help solve this crisis? Well, it is a serious crisis. And, uh, and the governor is right that we all should reflect on on what the reality is, uh, not only in Massachusetts, but all throughout the country. And, you know, there are a number of, of, of issues that are involved um, in dealing with this. I mean, everything from people being overprescribed or being prescribed things inappropriately. Um, there are issues in terms of, uh, you know, of how we could do a better job of, of prevention um, and of awareness and helping people identify signs when people are in trouble. Um, so, you know, we are we are trying to, um, you know, on the, on the federal level, provide assistance and guidance to uh, public health departments, to our, our schools, um, and to provide resources uh, to make sure that people get treatment on demand, um, which is not always easy. One of the people in your district has asked a question of you, Congressman, and this story has fallen off the front page of so many headlines because it is a, an international crisis that has now lingered for so long. Hockey Wheeland, one of the most active uh, activists in, in, in the area, writes, you know that I am your I'm most 
faithful, and loyal constituent. In that light, I beg you to lead the Democrats to say no to Biden's request for more money for weapons to Ukraine. Biden is risking becoming another LBJ with this war. If you want to end the suffering you witness in Ukraine, please stop funding the war and demand negotiations. What are you hearing? I know that Congress is recessed technically right now, but I know the work never really ends. Are there negotiations going on? What is happening with the funding? What's the future going to be with the funding? It seems like many of the Republicans are now starting to back away from this blank check towards supporting Ukraine. What's your take on Paki's question? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, the United States is not the only country that's supporting Ukraine. I mean, our, our European allies are investing heavily in Ukraine because they're quite frankly concerned. Putin, uh, without any justification, invaded Ukraine, and they're afraid that if he gets away with it, that that's not the end of it. I mean, when I was in Ukraine um, a year ago with Speaker Pelosi, we met with the president of Poland after we came out of Ukraine, and they're worried about a potential of uh, of a Russian attack on Poland. Now, whether that's justified or not, their worries are real. Look, I have spent my entire life fighting against wars, trying to get us out of uh, wars, you know, and I'm going to continue to do that. And if there's an opportunity for negotiations to bring this to an end, I'm, I'm open to that. But I haven't seen any evidence that the Russians are, uh, or Putin is interested in that. In fact, it looks like he just murdered one of his critics um, who was key in the Russian attempt to invade Ukraine. So I guess the issue is like, what is the plan to get Russia out of Ukraine? In order to negotiate, Putin has to agree to to want to talk and, and, and to end this thing. And I think at this particular point, Putin seems to believe that the election in a year from now may turn out, you know, in a way that his ally and friend, Donald Trump, becomes president. And then everybody walks away and he can take over Ukraine. So I think that's the calculation on the Russian side is that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and that is that that a Republican president, namely Trump, will win. He's made it very clear that he would end any support for Ukraine immediately. So I think for him, he wants to wait this out. In regards to who may become the next president of the United States, there was the first Republican debate missing the front runner, who I guess ran into some legal troubles during the uh, course of that debate. Nevertheless, uh, many candidates stepped up who are running for president on the Republican ticket. And many of those, if not all of those, said similar things to what Trump has been saying, where they would not continue to support funding the war in Ukraine. But if one of those candidates on that stage were to become the next president, Congressman McGovern, who do you think would be the easiest for you and for the Democrats to work with? I I don't even know, um, (laughs) to be honest with you. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with Chris Christie that Trump couldn't be president. Uh, and I, and I see the press that are giving good reviews to Nikki Haley for sounding reasonable, even though she's not on issues like abortion. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I think they're all, um, quite frankly, not what we need for the future of this country. But you've got to hold your uh, nose and you got to pick one of those candidates who was on that stage to be like, I think that we could get at least something done with fill in the blank. I, you know, I mean, I mean, Chris Christie sounds like he's the one who probably might be willing to work on, on some deals, I guess. I, I, I wasn't a big fan of his, his uh, when he was governor of New Jersey. But look, they're, they're all taking these very extreme positions where there's really no room for compromise. I mean, even on the issue of abortion, I mean, they've, they've all, I mean, they're taking these like these ultra right wing, crazy stands that leave no room for rationality or reasonableness. I mean, there's a lot at stake here. I, I you know, I still believe that this is a country that ought to 
aspired to stand for human rights at home and abroad. Um, and, you know, these guys are, you know, they embrace every tin horn dictator in the world. Um, and uh, they have no regard for civil rights. I, I was reading in the New York, New York Times today that Canada has issued a travel advisory, specifically the LGBTQ plus community, about the dangers of traveling to the United States and visiting certain states that have passed laws that are hostile to the LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus community. And imagine that. So Canada's issuing a travel advisory warning citizens about the dangers of traveling to the United States. That will intensify if Trump or one of those others uh, becomes the president of the United, next president of the United States. U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts getting ready to go back to Congress in a week and a half, but taking a little time out to tweet pictures of the super blue moon last night from Worcester, which I, I did. I yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> it was. <laughs> yeah, my, my wife, my wife dragged me out, to, Lisa dragged me out to, to look at the blue moon, but it wasn't blue. And then she and she gave me the little explanation. Oh, about, yeah. OK. But anyway, it was actually very, very nice to see. So <laughs> anyway, but it's great to talk to you. And you can always send your questions for the congressman who joins us every week. The Fab 413 at NEPM.org or text us 1-800-639-9120. Thanks as always, Congressman. All the best. Be safe. We did get a few questions about President Biden's Parents Plus Loan Reimbursement Plan, and we'll ask the congressman about those questions next week. Coming up, we'll break a sweat, pony sweat, that is, with Dallas Dukar of Trans Health. And next, we expand our book selection with the international titles of Restless Books and Amherst. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. There's a moment in the second part of Don Quixote, you might remember, where Don Quixote and Sancho enter a bookstore, a print store, bookstore, and they are talking about different books that are on the wall. And Sancho asks Don Quixote, what's the difference between reading a book in translation and reading it in the original? And this is from a man, Sancho, who can't read. And Don Quixote says, well, the difference is like looking at a Flemish carpet from the back and from the front. The translation is from the back. You know there's a carpet. You can imagine what the full colors, but you're not seeing the front of it. <laughs> but at least you're trying to look at the carpet. You are, you are. <laughs> I love that middle march is right next to the souls of Black Folk. Yeah, that's an interesting juxtaposition of books on a bookshelf. And, and passing, yeah. passing is just next to Machiavelli right. too, and then Frankenstein. Right, with Chekhov right above it. Yeah. Like this, the juxtaposition of titles here is amazing. This and is what the classics are, just mix them up. <laughs> and almost a whole Shelf of Quixote. Yes, Man. there you have it. The only reason I read Don Quixote in English, to be fair. Uh, to be fair. <laughs> to be fair. To be fair. Is because of our guest whose bookstore we are in right now. What's your name, good sir? Ilan Stavans, and it's such a pleasure to have you here. We had you on our show early on in its first few episodes talking about your book that chronicles the transition of the English language over the years. But Books are some things that you not only write and edit, you also help to get translated and promote. And now you have a brick and mortar bookstore right here on Main Street in Amherst called? It's called Restless Books, 69 Main Street. We just started in June and I am thrilled. I am just so excited to be part of this wonderful town. Next block is Emily Dickinson, our neighbor and yeah. in the back of Amherst College. And this is a town with an incredible intellectual book tradition. And it feels just 
like the perfect place for us. You not only are a professor of humanities and uh, Latino culture at Amherst College, you, uh, as I mentioned, you're an author yourself, and you have worked with a publishing company that has striven for years to get books from other parts of the world in other languages translated into other languages to sort of bring the intellectual community of the world together like a babblefish uh, so that we can all share ideas with each other. Tell us what started this as a mission for you, Elon? It started, Monty, when I was about to turn 50, and I kept on pushing the idea that this country, so powerful, so mighty, so influential, has very few books published every year that come from other languages. Whereas in German, 53% of the books that are published annually come from other languages in translation, and in France, and in Spain, and in Italy, and in Portugal. The amount of translated books is enormous. Those cultures are geared to understand themselves in connection with other parts of the world. In the United States, it's the proverbial 3%. Only 3% of our annual books come from other languages. It's true, it's hard to publish in translation because you not only buy the book, you have to imagine the translation and try to figure out if that's going to fit into the taste of your audience. And when you buy a book that is in translation, you have to not buy it for publication that year, but maybe one year from now or two years from now because the translation takes time and will the zeitgeist, will the taste of people change by then? And uh, I was in on, on an NPR show. Check, name check it. It was Talk of the Nation. I love that show. Yeah. And I was saying that it was regretful how little we had coming from other cultures. After the show, the wonderful host, we had become friends over the years, said, Elan, don't you get tired of repeating these things? I've heard you uh, say it once and again and again. And after that, and because of the age that I had, that I was in, I thought either I change my shtick, start talking about other things, maybe <laughs> Barbies. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the zeitgeist is at right now. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. Or try to do something about it. And I imagined uh, reaching out to potential donors and uh, 12 years later, here we are with a publishing house that has celeb is celebrating its 10th anniversary. We've published more than 200 books wow. in uh, 50 different countries, 35 different languages. It's a nonprofit. It's not easy. It's exciting. You mean the lucrative world of oh, uh, brick oh and mortar God. bookstores and, and, and yeah. actually published paper books is not somehow <laughs> lucrative for people? Yeah. Yes. You were saying something about the time of translation and Barbie. And like their timeline for getting that translated is way shorter than everything for literature, period. Yeah. Exactly. Y si todo eso también es así para una muñeca que represente a una mujer. And the goal is not only to find a translator, but to find the translator. Right. Meaning the sensibility that will really match with the author. Because if you make the wrong match there between author and translator, the reader who is always very intelligent, very attentive, very sensitive will notice it. And the translator is just as important as the author for that. Translators reason. are always important. Having yes. come from an event where this was shown in stark 
profile this weekend. <laughs> what was that? I went to see uh, Company Cafigue at Jacob's Pillow. They're a French company. And uh, Jacob's Pillow, to their credit, they did bring on a translator. But you could tell how much was being left on the stage. No shade onto them for the translator that they found. Like, there's all sorts of circumstances. But we were in the dark for a lot of what was being said. It's not easy. So how, Elon Stabans, here in your new brick-and-mortar restless books on Main Street in Amherst, are you, as the publishing company and the publisher, finding the right translators? Or how does that process happen? The translators are really our heroes. The translators are the antennae, the bridges with other cultures. They are the ones that often pitch books to us and tell us, look, in Poland, there's this new book that just came out. Pay attention to it. I can translate the first 10 pages for you to get a taste. So sometimes the book actually comes to us thanks to the translator who makes that first pitch. On occasion, we will fall in love with a book, but not with that first 10 pages. On other occasions, we will not fall in love with a book, but the translation is so good that I will say, can we find something else? Because I want to recognize Polish literature or Ghanan literature or wherever it is from. But through you, um, I can't tell you how crucial, how decisive, but how how invested we are also in making the translators feel comfortable and making the translators really process the material that they are they are sending to us and then being part of the launch of the book. When the book comes out, when possible, we bring the author. We also bring the translator and we create all sorts of events for the two of them to be talking to the reader. For me, those are the three crucial players here. It's the author, the translator, and the reader. And they have to meet at some point beyond the page. For us, publishing books from other countries is an excuse to create these happenings where the writers will engage the audience and the audience will find out that, yes, there are other cultures that matter and they don't think like us. And we should start thinking that they don't think like us. <laughs> in similar fashion, do you find that the percentages of translated literature in America mimic those of the UK? The UK is slightly better and we collaborate with the, with UK publishers often, but still the American empire inherited the, the lack of interest in the rest of the world from the British empire. It's One, the English thing. We're just sort of like, why would we learn another language? Yeah. This one's fine. Everyone else comes to speak this one. That's exactly the point. I had my uncle in Long Island who said, Ilan, you really need to perfect your English. My English was terrible when I immigrated from Mexico. And I don't know, five years later, when I could already communicate, I said, Uncle Stanley, it's your time to re- learn Spanish. Why should I, he said. You already speak English. (laughs) Do you ever do dual translation, like with original language next to the translated copy? Yeah, we do. We are launching in 2024, and I'm thrilled to be saying it, a poetry line that is going to be emerging poets young in the United States and poets of diverse backgrounds, and then poets from other parts of the world that have not yet made it to the English language or to American audiences. And often they will come in the original and the English, but also with published children's books. We have a book called Daniel and Ishmael from the Middle East that is published in three languages in the same page. Oh, wow. It's Arabic, 
Hebrew and English. It's, uh, it's actually a book that started in Chile. It's the story of a Jewish Israeli and a Palestinian Israeli kids, both playing soccer, going alone to the park. And uh, one of them puts his keffiyeh and the other one puts his prayer shawl to create the goal. Uh -huh. And they start playing and forgetting about their differences. And uh, it's a book that tries to find common ground between Palestinians and Israelis, mm. both playing soccer and disregarding their parents animosity toward Yay. each other. And what a great way to learn a language too. Like I used to keep a book of Neruda poems in my bathroom and read it in Spanish <laughs> and in English. I would have loved that. <laughs> I'm sure you would have. Why don't we take a look at some of the books on of your course. shelves here? So yeah. we have a brick and mortar bookstore where people can come and, and buy these books right off the shelf, right? We, we are here in front of what I think is an amazing variety of books from different parts of the world. One of the missions of Restless, we have three main missions. One is to publish contemporary uh, literature that is extraordinary from different parts of the world. Books in translation, they are mainly for adults. That is yes, adult fiction. by Jamaica Kincaid. Yes, and it's a beautiful, <laughs> you'll see that one. And also children's books. We have a division called Yonder of books that come from different parts of the world. This book is called My Life at the Bottom, the story of a lonesome axolotl. It's the story of this little axolotl that lives at the bottom of the ocean where there are plastic bottles and all kinds of garbage and is trying to figure out how to survive it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Where does that one come from originally? This book comes from Finland. And this book, we just published, uh, The Invisible Elephant, comes from Russia. I am very happy to say that in spite of all the difficulties right now, a Russian book is being published. Uh, it's a story about disability, and it's really finding an audience. And where does Noor and Bobby come from? Noor and Bobby comes from Lebanon. This story, Noor and Bobby, it's a story about a little boy in a war-stricken city trying to find his pet. And one of the goals of the book is to show that not all children's books have to be rosy, that you can find happiness, realizing also that the world is in crisis. And many people live in, the, in cities right now that have been bombed or have been destroyed, and that should be also part of what children read. Then we also publish the classics, and I am as proud of them. Why can't a small publishing house also delve into what Penguin and Oxford and Barnes & Noble do, which is have the classics available for everyone, but we do it in a different way. We Our classics are geared to underrepresented audiences. Uh, they come with illustrations by artists that come from those backgrounds, and they have introductions by people who show a different aspect. You were talking about Jamaica Kincaid. Mm -hmm. We published a Robinson Crusoe, a book that defined modern European culture, but here is a letter by the great Jamaica Kincaid telling Robinson Crusoe, please not to come. Mm. Uh, don't come to my island in the Caribbean. <laughs> you will create all kinds of havoc and destruction. Stay where you are, even though I like your book. So that's the type of thing that we want. On the way, more with Amherst College's Ilan Stavans at Restless Books in Amherst. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. I noticed that all of the Ilan Stavans books are on the top shelf and you can barely reach them. You have to get, <laughs> you want to read you the really people's tongue. You really have to make an effort. You really have to go. 
easy. So how, Ilan Stabans, here in your new brick and mortar restless books on Main Street in Amherst? The People's Tongue is, it's an anthology that was published to celebrate the 10th anniversary of Restless and it chronicles how the English language has changed. Yeah. We had a marvelous show with you guys some months ago. Back in March, I think. Yeah. Back. Ilan Stabans, Amherst College professor, author, one of the people behind Restless Books, the publishing company, and now the brick and mortar business right here on Main Street in Amherst, next to the Black Sheep, down the street from Emily Dickinson's it's house. One shelf of books. I know. It's like a whole other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you looking at over here, Kalise? It's tickling your fancy on these bookshelves. <laughs> I love Hodorowski, and I see there's a whole shelf. I know shelf there's of a that. lot of Hodorowski, but I was looking at a uh, down-home meal for these difficult times, mm -hmm. which looks really cool. And then I immediately noticed the Ozeki before because I love her prose in general. But Condom Knots seems interesting. <laughs> Where's that one? Right here. Tell us about that one. Condom Knots is by Yos. It's a, one of three books that we have published by this astonishing Cuban writer who is also a rock musician and a main cultural figure in Cuba. It is Cuban science fiction. How do yes! Cubans imagine the future yeah. uh, from that socialist island? Condom Knots in particular is a very sexy book. As you can imagine it is the even the cover sex <laughs> it is the sex that different species and robots are having all over the galaxy which we all gotta get ready for <laughs> yes <laughs> now that we have opened up the galaxy super extra grande is also by yours it's uh, it has been very successful it is the journey in a spaceship into the belly of a monster that lives in outer space who is having indigestion it's a riot i love I love science fiction and I love science fiction from the so-called developing world. How different does the future look from that perspective to ours? And uh, we've been publishing, particularly from Cuba, this kind of snippets of how the, the world looks. And again, how many times do you think about what science fiction looks like from Cuba? And now you can take a glimpse into that. Tell me about City of Good Death. We have an annual immigrant writing prize, international immigrant writing prize. It's a $10,000 prize for the best manuscripts. One year is fiction, one year is nonfiction by an immigrant anywhere in the world that is either writing in English or the book comes to us in English. And this is a novel that won the Immigrant Writing Prize that it deals with India, a house where people go to die in India and from uh, where their souls disperse all over the world. It's a beautiful novel. It came about three or four years ago. And uh, other immigrant writing prize winners are, for instance, Temporary People by Deepak uh, Unikrishnan. It is a collection of short stories that represents the people that we don't see in Saudi Arabia that are building the huge skyscrapers and whose names are not recorded anywhere because they come from India or Pakistan. Uh, they are underpaid, they are undernourished, they work and they are expelled immediately after that. They build stadiums or they build big uh, shopping malls. And it's a, it's a beautiful book about 
giving credit to those immigrants who are hardly known. That is what literature does, I think. Literature calls attention to aspects of our world that pass by without us noticing. And that is, I think, something very important in this day and age, when we are torpedoed with images all the time of immigrants uh, moving from one place to another, dying on the border, uh, many of them nameless. Let's humanize them. Let's give them their own story. I think literature can do that. And I think the art and act of reading about them is a form of, of resisting against this kind of homogenization of the world. Always be broadening your perspective. Yes. We just uh, concluded this year's uh, immig International Immigrant Writing Prize. We received more than 100 manuscripts. It was for nonfiction. And the, the short list is going to be announced next week. Oh, wow. uh, we have four that come from Cuba, Trinidad and Tobago, Germany, and Russia. The winner is still to be decided. The excerpts of all the four books will be published in the journal The Common. And I just want to stress maybe the fact that they come from such different parts of the world. The Russian book is a manifesto against Putin and against the way that he has literally kidnapped the Russian soul and eliminated all kinds of dissent. The Cuban book is about leaving the island, forced to move to the United States and acclimating to life in Vermont. The beautiful German book is a collection of essays by granddaughter of a Nazi commander and how she deals with the family legacy as she becomes a biologist. And finally, the, the hunting book uh, from Trinidad and Tobago is about abusive mothers in the Caribbean and dealing with this legacy as she herself finds her own place, the author, as a woman in this world and as, and as an immigrant. It is written in a kind of mix of English and the, the patois from Trinidad and Tobago. It, it is beautifully poetic, incredibly courageous, as are the, all, the other three books. And it's, it, I'm very proud to delve into this and give a, a, a platform for these authors that are all immigrants and that are all very courageous in telling their story in such a way. At a time when in the United States we see immigrants as undermining our culture, taking away the, our hospital beds or our places in the classroom, it is immigrants that are really the core, the base of what this culture is. Immigrants just give you a perspective of who you are and who the rest of the world is and how you live in this in-between space. Uh, very, very important. Are you going to put Hamilton in there? Probably not. Okay, good. So 2016. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, like you're not still. <laughs> I, know, I don't listen to it every day anymore. Immigrants, we get the job done. What do you envision this space to be? 
going forward. You were mentioning, Ilan, that you love bringing the authors and the translators together. Will this be like a gathering space potentially for some of those events? This is exactly what we're hoping. We are mainly a publishing house. We are editing books here. We're acquiring them. We are reaching out to different agents and translators. But we are also a store now, and we will be very soon a space where authors will come and read, where there will be public conversations about translation, about why books matter, and why culture should continue being attached to the written word. This is what we want this space to be, uh, a place of encounter, of thought, of provocation, uh, where the word printed and spoken really matter. Restless Books on Main Street in Amherst is planning a grand opening sometime this fall. We asked listeners last week, while we were on the beach, about things that are gone but not forgotten here in Western Mass. And we've been highlighting some of those as the week has gone on from their emails. And we got one from Martin Stevens, who said, Hello, Fab413. Longtime 413 Hepcat Marty here. Miss my share of places, but the top of the list include the Woodrose Ballroom in South Deerfield and Lazy River in Northampton. Very memorable shows. Now, I've been in Western Mass for 20 years. And I think I can honestly say I have heard of neither of those places. No, but I think that we got a clue from them referring to themselves as a hepcap that it may be a little bit before either of our times here because we've been in the Valley for about the same amount of time. Yeah, and I want to do a little more investigating to hear about those kind of places. And so we love hearing these kind of stories. Yeah, and if you've got more, please send them to thefab413 at nepm.org. Don't forget to include the definite article. Coming up, bust out your workout gear. We're about to break into a pony sweat with the director of TransHealth, Dallas Dukar. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to the fabulous 413. A different kind of workout song. Yeah, pony sweat. <laughs> it's not what Twilight Sparkle, Applejack, and Rainbow Dash are exuding on a hot summer day. Pony sweat is a fiercely non-competitive dance aerobics class for trans health of Western Mass to raise awareness and funds and to expand gender-affirming care and impact policies that protect the rights of trans and gender-diverse people. Pony sweat for trans health is happening next Saturday, September 9th, from noon to two behind the garden house at Look Park in Northampton. and will be live streamed nationally around the globe as well. And joining us is the director of Trans Health of Western Mass, Dallas Dukar. Thank you once again for joining us here in the Fabulous 413. Hey there. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So behind is the patio or is it like what counts as behind the garden house? Because I'm thinking about it and I thought that behind the garden house was a hill. Yeah, it, it's the, the grassy area. It's not the hill. We'll have some level ground for okay. sure. Okay. Yeah, uh, but we, you know, we'll be we'll be on grass, and you can either come and join or come and watch too. Before we get to the amazing weirdness, which is <laughs> pony sweat, for those who might not be familiar with trans health and the work that you're doing, tell us a little bit about your mission. Sure. So we are a healthcare organization that's dedicated to expanding gender-affirming care. And we really see that there's an urgent need right now to shift our healthcare model from 
trying to treat necessarily to prevention, to community, to well-being, right? And so we have four pillars, our clinical care, advocacy, research, education, that's all supported through our community. Without our community, we are nothing, right? And so we're really trying to flip the model on healthcare and say, we're going to spend enough time with you to get to know you, to connect you to community resources, to connect you to other things that insurance might not actually say are healthcare events, right? But we know are healing. And Pony Sweat is one example of that too. Really community-based care at a time when the nation's top doctor has urged us to confront the loneliness epidemic that is plaguing our society mm. and our democracy. This is an attempt to say we're actually going to combat that entire epidemic and start with affirming health care. And that starts at a place like TransHealth. And that starts with things like Pony Sweat. <laughs> I think it's – let's, let's talk about Pony Sweat. Let's talk so about Pony it Sweat. Is, it's themed as sort of like an 80s workout video. Yeah. I remember being a child in the 80s and having to accompany my mom and being in like a corralled area to watch them do these type of 80s – uh, sweat into the oldies, Richard Simmons type things. I have and, a friend from college who actively now is a jazzercise instructor. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think it's amazing. And, yeah. you know, the 80s is really trendy again right now. A lot of people are getting into that feel, even the Barbie movie, which we referenced earlier, uh, with the sweatbands and the spandex and, and the, the lycra and the neon and all that. How did Trans Health uh, connect with Pony Sweat? And, and where, where is Pony Sweat uh, base, I guess? Well, Pony Sweat's based out of L.A. on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And we actually, it was a lot of just uh, dependent arisings that happened at once. We had a lot of different people who started talking about Pony Sweat at the same time, especially people in the queer community. Mm-hmm. And we all just thought, well, why not, right? Yeah. I mean, why not bring on the neon? Why not bring in the 80s? Um, you know, we wanted to emphasize our whole whole strategy at TransHealth has been to emphasize community, emphasize well-being. And why not do that with neon leggings? Yeah, Why absolutely. not do that with vibrancy and inclusivity, right? So this is a fundraiser for TransHealth. It is. How, uh, f- first, what's the money? What, do, what is TransHealth? What are the needs that TransHealth has right now? What kind of things are you r- raising money for? Sure. So, I mean, there's always general operational costs, right? Because the way that TransHealth is structured is we actually devote enough time for patient care. So every appointment is 30 minutes or an hour. You're not being rushed through there. There's enough time to get to know you as an individual. And so that primary care model is not the most profitable in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so we look towards other funding sources there too. Uh, We're also raising money for our uh, needle program too. So there's a lot of just just different injection supplies that are needed for hormones, specifically for patients. And especially during the COVID pandemic, there was a real shortage Mm -hmm. of needles too. Uh, We also are looking into other uh, community assistance programs too, um, that we're still fleshing out and trying to say this, your money can go directly to this specific initiative. Things like housing, for example, mm-hmm. that we're investigating at this point. Uh, things like uh, pharmacy copay drug assistance, for example. Things like uh, being able to have your care paid for if you cannot otherwise uh, afford care, mm-hmm. which we already do, right? We don't refuse care to anyone. And we also ensure that people who otherwise would not be insured either are on mass health or are being able to get access to care. Uh, but we also, that requires some additional funding too. So um, yeah, there's there's some initial projects that we're really looking at right now and we're, we're fleshing out, but it really comes back to providing that care at the end of the day. 
Are the leaders of uh, leaders of pony sweat? That seems like I just the lead horses. Oh, I, I think that... they call them ponies. Okay, <laughs> ponies are not just small horses. This is true. Yeah. yeah. Are the tiny stallions of pony sweat coming out to to lead it in person, or is this going to be more of a, a Zoom Plus sort of event with like us in the community being there in person and them being there more in spirit than in body? They are coming out. They're flying out from the West Coast in person. Nice. That is wicked cool. Uh, I'll I watched be... some of the videos. They are seemingly very cool people and good dancers. Very cool people. Uh, the way they say it, it's not, though, about looking cool. Right. It's not being put together. It's not about doing anything perfectly, right? It's just about learning to trust your body, right? It's learning to practice radical self-love, to engage with friends, with community, knowing that, uh, you know, whoever or wherever you are, you're not alone. And that's really what we want to focus on at the end of the day is bringing in community. And we're so lucky to have uh, Senator Joe Comerford, Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, myself, uh, local icon Tara Brewster, many other individuals coming up and uh, leading their own teams there, too. They're going to be dancing? Oh, yeah. they're going to be dancing. We're all going to be dancing. Senator Joe Comerford and Lindsay Sabadosa yes. sweating it out with the neon and the lycra? Oh, yes. 110%. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the songs that are on Pony Sweat's posted uh, August playlist include Luscious Jackson, Energy Sucker, The Tom Tom Club, Won't Give You Up, uh, Ibibio Sound Machine, who has mm. been in the area a couple mm-hmm. times doing their version of Let's Dance, uh, Dancing in the Dark, Bruce Springsteen. So this, it's like seemingly like a very, very fun yes. event. Pony in- Sweat in- happening next Saturday at the Garden House. Including Park. their cool down song about which I have some some questions, but I'm sure it's going to be wonderful. What's the cool down song? It is One More Try by George Michael. Yeah, you got to cool down, though. <laughs> you do. You got to am- ramp it up, get all right. sweaty, and, and, then, cool and then cool down. down. That's just, that's good health care. It's true. Yes. Right? It's good health care. Yes. We're don't really forget, trying to. Don't forget to stretch and don't forget to cool down. Yes. And don't forget to hydrate. Right. Indeed. Dallas yeah. Dukar, who's the head of Trans Health of Western Mass. We heard Congressman McGovern at the first part of the show saying how concerned he was that Canada has issued a travel advisory to some of their citizens about coming to the United States, specifically members of the LGBTQ community. Are you finding at Trans Health of Western Mass that you are serving people from other parts of our country because of the for the same reasons that, tran- that Canada issued this travel ban, that people are not feeling safe? as who they are in the communities where they live in this country. Yes, 100%. Throughout this year, we've actually increased our hiring uh, rapidly to try to serve our local community and the broader Commonwealth and those outside the Commonwealth too. We have over 50 employees at this point, uh, and that is a rapid growth because we're only two years old Mm. at this point, right? And we've needed to and specifically focus on hiring providers and clinicians, and then also more community support individuals too, uh, community health workers, community engagement folks too. And really... What we have, we have our support groups that at this point support over 450 individuals uh, through hybrid group settings, right? So that includes peer support that also reaches outside of the state lines because you don't necessarily need any type of medical Mm -hmm. uh, relationship there, right? right? And then with telehealth, too, we've really been able to broaden our services to really ensure that we're able to provide care to people that at least are in the New England region and we provide care across New England. We're seeing people come to us though, from other states. We're seeing families relocate. We're seeing families who've come as far as Florida 
relocating to Massachusetts. And we've been in contact with other partners that are doing this work as well. And we're really seeing a division across the United States that's really representing people and states that support one's liberty and free expression and the ability to pursue their own happiness and other states that are working directly against that. And it, this is a new environment. This is unprecedented. We're really seeing a really bleak time for the health care of trans individuals specifically. There's an all-out attack, and Canada is calling it out as what they see across this country, right? So we want to stand for a beacon of hope and for freedom and for anyone to be able to receive the health care that they deserve, scientifically rigorous, medically validated health care, and ensure that people have the freedom to be able to choose their own care. And uh, unfortunately, we're not seeing the same from other states. And, um, you know, we can only do the best that we can each day to make sure that we're providing the best care possible. Do you feel that with this collaboration with a national organization like Pony Sweat, we'll see, we'll end up with you seeing more of a bump of people using your services from a wider, a much wider net, a much wider area? You know, I think that's, I think that's possible. Uh, there are still, in providing health care, there's just a lot of difficulties in providing that care to people in different areas. We do not provide care to places where gender-affirming care w- is banned. Um, but we do see increasing requests whenever that outreach continues to grow, right? And I imagine, I have seen, that as we've continued to outreach to other places in, across the country, we have seen more people that have been able to at least try to get linked into care. Mm-hmm. And I think importantly, we've had a lot of people reach out and say, just thank you for the work that you're doing. This is serving as a symbol of hope right now. And that's allowed us to still get them into community care services, even if we're not directly able to provide them care at that moment. I know that the goal is to raise $50,000 through this Pony Sweat event a week from Saturday at the mm-hmm. Park Garden House. You can still sign up and start a team and raise money yes. to try to support the work of Trans Health. Dallas Dukar, who is the uh, the head of Trans Health, and you can dance with Joe Comerford, the senator, and Lindsay Sabadosa. If I'm not out of town, I'm coming in spandex and lycra, perhaps. And Please, I no promises. Promise spandex, but like. right. But I mean, you know, <laughs> you can check out our Instagram and you'll see me all over there in spandex <laughs> and lycra. <laughs> I know that for some people, that trans health is. Uh, if you need a hero, they are. You're looking out for a hero till the end of the night. You've got to be strong. <laughs> you got to be fast. And you got to be larger than life. You got to have sweat from ponies. But you can create that on your own. And what easier way to say thank you than to come out and dance? We're here for you Indeed. as a hero. <laughs> Dallas Dukar from Trans Health of Western Mass. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure. Tomorrow on the show, we'll be drinking wine with Michael Quinlan from Table and Vine. And we have some very sad news about the future of certain trees in Massachusetts. But, you know, perhaps some better news about your lilac bushes in case you had some worries. Plus, we'll have live music Friday with High Tea from Greenfield. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, the Jay Giles Band, the Marcells, the original cast of Man of La Mancha and Hamilton, the Art of Noise, Manu Chow, Cindy Lauper, and Bonnie Tyler. <laughs> I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. We'll see you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.